Hello, and welcome to another episode of Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey, Holistic Registered Dietitian, and the author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal your self-image, and achieve body liberation. My work is centered on amplifying the health and the happiness of LGBTQIA plus BIPOC people, and that is also what we do here at Body Liberation for All. I want to remind you, I am hosting the Decolonizing Wellness Eco-Luxury QT BIPOC Retreat in Bali in March. So if you are a person who loves to plan way in advance like I do, this is when you want to book. This is a great time to give yourself plenty of room to break the trip into payments and to get all of your ducks in a row. If you aren't going to be able to join us, but you know someone who this retreat could be life-changing for, please make sure you share it. Substack makes sharing so easy on their platform. So if you visit daliakinsey.substack.com to listen to this episode, you'll see it's just a click of a button. Today's guest, the IL Rosenstock, is a very, very busy person and has so much knowledge in different areas that we cover a lot of territory in this conversation, but there was still so much more that we could have dug into that hopefully at a later date, we'll get to revisit. Today's conversation, we explore a little bit of the lived experience of being a white presenting person who lives shoulder to shoulder with POC within the family, but out in the world is not having the same experience as the family members that have a darker complexion. And since we already know race is not actually real from a scientific perspective, it's totally a social construct, your skin color itself will, to a large extent, determine how much lived experience you have as a person of color or as a white person, regardless of what your socialization inside of your house is because so much of the POC experience, if you're living in a colonized country, if you're living in a country that has its roots in white supremacy, so much of the experience is informed by the anti-blackness or the anti-POC-ness that you're going to encounter out in the world. That does not in any way invalidate the cultural uniqueness of people who are in these very blended families and happen to have pale skin, happen to have white skin. So it's interesting to me to hear directly from somebody having this experience. An interesting concept looking at on an individual level, what does the fact that race is fictional (laughs) and totally social, how does that all play out when you know you are culturally different from maybe the white folks who do not have POC blood relatives that they live with and are close with. But at the same time, you know, you're not experiencing the same level of marginalization. What what is that like? So this is an interesting topic to explore. I rarely bother to claim my Latinx heritage because the anti-blackness that I've encountered in a lot of Spanish speaking circles here in the US is so intense. It doesn't make any logical sense for me to keep trying to be somewhere that I don't feel 
welcome. Some of these themes that Yael shares of feeling that not enoughness when you are more than one thing or when you've only been presented with a narrow definition of what it means to hold a particular identity is so relatable. I know not just to us, it's so relatable to so many people because the ways that we define certain identities are so narrow, it naturally leaves out a large number of people. The work that Yale is doing to promote authentic representation of a wide variety of human experience at her publishing company feels like such a natural extension of this lived experience that she has of knowing how difficult it can be to really claim and embody our identities when we haven't seen anything similar reflected back to us. I love this entire conversation. I know you will too. Let's jump right into it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. That all the time. But I definitely wanted to cover the the concept of White, white passing, passing fragility, but then I want to definitely talk about your other projects and just what you're doing with intersectionality. So, okay. I do want to warn that there's a very good chance that that will not, like some people will really like that idea, the white passing fragility, but others won't because right, the author of that book has become super famous and super uh, rich Ooh. off of a book around racism as a white woman. And just giving you a fair warning that this may or may not be taken so well. Well, and then that's so interesting too, because it seems like people should be compensated for good work or things that they do with good intentions. But so often people who are in social justice are on the struggle bus financially. But, and that almost seems to be the expectation. Like you have to be a martyr to break down systems of oppression. But but then I also am conflicted because it seems like all the time white people continue to profit off of pain from people of color and especially black people in this country. Even when you look at who makes money off of depictions of just black suffering in general, whether it's another mm -hmm. movie about slavery, even if it's a fun spin on it, like Django or something, which I refuse to watch. I just don't understand how we're not seeing how problematic that is, but at least hers originally started out with intentions that seemed more educational. Like mm -hmm. I think it's a little more sketch to create a film or a piece of entertainment that centered on black pain. And then all the money goes to somebody who's not black. I mean, not at all, yes. of it, but the majority. Most of it. Right. It seems less sketchy, but it is sketchy nonetheless. And I've been having a lot of feelings around these white savior complexes that mm -hmm. are popping out these days and people not understanding that, Hey, maybe people want to be the hero of their own damn story. And guess what? Maybe they already are, but you're in the way. <laughs> I know. Right. Or like yeah. you're just exhausting people showing up to the March and explaining to everybody how 
you know, you're being white the right way. I, I don't know if you've seen that play out in real life where people try constantly schooling other white people on how to be more down, I guess, is the expression, but it doesn't really translate. But it's so rare that people confront people like that because mm -hmm. their competition or the people that you have to compare them to sometimes are so problematic that by comparison, they seem like amazing. Yes. Yes. So it's like, should I even say anything? So I don't know. Considering that most of my spaces are POC and or Latin, I don't have that many white saviors. Smart. Okay. Is that by design or is that coincidental? Well, I think at first it's coincidental, right? Just like growing up in a mixed neighborhood with a mixed family. It just is what happened. I was in a school with folks of different groups. And so that just continued. And then when I did reach middle school and there were white people who were just white, not Latin. Like, I mean, there were a couple in elementary, but not many. And I, I just felt really uncomfortable in this space. And that was like my assigned group because I wasn't dark enough to be in the Latin group, I think. And also like the Latin group was like ghetto fab. Like <laughs> I also wore my hair back, slicked back. I also had the lip liner and I had the big hoop earrings as well. But like it, wasn't it, it, was, a, it was a brown or Latin group. And so uh, I felt like I shouldn't be part of it. Like I was friends with them, but I shouldn't be part of it because I, I didn't look the same. And so I just like ended up, even though I was friends with all the other groups, I ended up in the white girl group. And I was just like, this is uncomfortable. Like I don't agree with what they say. I like rebelled a bit and basically got kicked out. And so I think after that, I was just like, well, I'm going to try and choose. And so I, I don't think I've ever been like, I'm unwilling to be friends with, with white people because that doesn't seem nice either. Yeah. But the same reason that folks have affinity groups, right? The same reason we hang out with queer people as queer people, the same reason you hang out with Latin people if you're Latin or black and black is because you don't want to have to explain certain things and mm -hmm. I'm tired. And so I don't go into all white spaces because I get nervous about why are they all white? Like, what's the intention behind this group? Is there an ulterior motive? And I, yeah, I just like, I don't want to have to explain things that I end up becoming that white person, the white savior being like, that's not how I joined a book club once. And they were talking about how like, it didn't make sense that this person was referencing their dreams. Like, it's not like a real thing. And I was like, this person is Mexican. And I don't know that much about Mexicans, but in like Caribbean culture, dreams can be really important. Oh, wait, they were saying like a literal dream, not goals, that they yeah, were like looking in for the meaning book. in their dream. And they thought that memoir. was weird? Yeah, he was writing a memoir and he was referencing how he thought his dream was related to the, like what was happening in his life and that he had seen a wolf or something, right? Yeah. And, like, he has indigenous culture roots, right? right? As a Mexican American. But they were just like, no, that's like, he's just making that up from the memoir. But yeah, but no, because that's extremely common. Yeah. And they, like, like every they other, that is fascinating. So this is so interesting. Can you share your marginalized identities? Because I think the experience of being white presenting is interesting in that you may be exposed to things that I might never hear. Because I, I didn't even know that, I didn't even notice that white people weren't doing that all the time too, because at work, <laughs> at the moment, I'm working in a majority black office and yeah. people are constantly talking about, you know, oh, I saw this. I wonder if it's a sign. And we all have different religious backgrounds too. Yeah. <laughs> Someone even started wearing a hairnet because they're afraid somebody might 
get some of their hair as it was shedding and put roots on them. Oh, no. And none of us thought that was weird. <laughs> we were all like, oh, if you feel it's necessary, you do that. You make sure you're not. <laughs> you save yourself. It may or may not be real. It may or may not be. I'm always like, I'd rather be careful than sorry. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Nobody said anything when I came into the office to sage it because I thought that we had some bad mojo in there. People said, make sure you get mine. Someone came in with holy water. Like we had a very problematic coworker. We were like, get all the stuff. We're clapping in the corners. I was friends with one of the custodians where I used to work and she's an older woman. She was like the age of maybe like between mother and grandmother. And she brought me a bracelet because she was like, you're very joyful and you're pretty. And I just think that someone's going to send you a curse. Me a bracelet to protect me from maldiciones, right? She just didn't yeah. want me to get hurt. And you and immediately yeah, put like, it on. You're like, okay, thanks. I mean, first off, like, I appreciate that you're caring about me. And no, I don't think it's weird. I've worn evil eyes before, you know, like, to me, I think that the bigger thing for us is like, whether or not we participate or whether or not we're like, yes, this is real. Like when I talk about ghost stories, I share all the ghost stories I know. Was I there? No. Was it real? I don't know because I wasn't there, but it could be. It's so dismissive to be like, oh, that's so dumb. What? Who says that? Only people who are very sheltered and are under the impression that their way is the only way. This was a group about social justice. The people are lovely and the ones who posted, I actually adore. They are fantastic. And they weren't the ones who were having this <laughs> question. But I remember one person in particular, she was just completely dismissive. And I was just like, I don't understand. It's, I didn't show up for a couple of years, but then I came back and I was like, okay, my role is going to be giving the perspective of not these people in the case that this comes up again. Because I keep reading books by people of color and like, I don't have the same perspective. Like I said, I'm not Mexican. I don't know what they do but I have a feeling that this is like something that's shared. Like it's a Native American thing. It's a Latin thing. It's a black thing. Like I just feel, you know, Asian cultures, <laughs> everyone actually. I know this is what is so European. bizarre. I'm and some white people. There are definitely white people who also have that as their, I mean like, and Jews, a lot of us who do pass it, who are white or pass as white. Like that's also part of our culture. And that's another thing. So this is one of my big questions. So, so you identify as Latinx, and Latina. you're Latina and you're Jewish. And so does that mean your mother is your Jewish parent? That is actually, so. <laughs> or does that matter? Or is that like out of date or? No, no, that is an excellent question. My parents tried to enroll me in what's called yeshiva because they didn't like the local public school. And so they wanted to put me in a Jewish school and I got rejected because my mother is Catholic and my father is Jewish. And as you, like we're insinuating, like religion follows the, the mother. Now that school accepts mutts like me of my form. They no longer discriminate against us, but because my parents couldn't put me in the Jewish school, I went to an Episcopalian school. Oh, wow. <laughs> All over the place. Yeah. So I got a good Christian education for six years. <laughs> oh, and how did your dad, was he a little heartbroken? Like, ugh, not what I had in mind. Well, it was a small school. There was no religion class, but like every morning we started with prayers and every Wednesday we had mass. And I just, I didn't know they wanted me to be Jewish. I thought they were saying, here are our religions. You go to Sunday Jewish school, you go to day school with Christians, like figure out your path. And so I very confidently figured out my path. I was like, I am Jewish. And like, I am now very knowledgeable about Christian stuff. <laughs> but actually they did want me to be Jewish and they had warned the school that that was what they wanted. I was under the impression, and this may not be accurate, is that like a modern Jewish person 
may be a little more secular and maybe they know some of the traditions and then maybe they go to synagogue for special events or, but still feel that strong cultural identity and then don't really feel, feel like they should be dropped into that white American bucket with everybody else because they're separate as an ethnic group, whereas other white ethnic groups gave up their separateness for the most part. Interesting. So I haven't done much study into the question, but I have a friend who sent me, who sent me lots of articles, Catherine, and uh, she sent me an article about whether or not Jews are white. And my coworker, Asia Gray, who does our anti-racism curriculum and what have you, one of the books was how anti-Semitism was the original racism. And so that's part of the way that she talks about oppression and like structural oppressions and what have you. And she starts that story there. And it's like, Jews became white if you are white, but there are black Jews. There are like plenty of Middle Eastern Jews that have more color. There are Russian Jews, the Sephardic Jews, the Mizrahi in general. So there are plenty of Jews of color. And then they're like me, Ashkenazi, which are of German roots, right? German and certain parts of Russia roots and Poland and all that kind of stuff. And so, yes, it is a different, I agree it's a different ethnic group. Like you can trace us back. When I did that blood test, I literally come out 49% Ashkenazi. I'm from Germany, even though I can, I can trace my roots on a family tree that's physical to the 1500s. It says I'm Ashkenazi. It doesn't mention Germany because the Jewish blood is what it picks up. And so, yes, I agree. Like there's like this ethnic thing And that's why you can be a secular person of a religion. I mean, there are plenty of secular Christians, right, that celebrate Christmas and what have you. But there's like this certain level, like the foods that you eat and the the mannerisms that you have and like certain cultural values. I don't identify as a secular Jew. I identify as reform, which is like a, a less observant Jew. Now, how did you feel your queer identity meshes with Judaism? It's rumored to be an easier mesh. Is that true or Christians just being jealous? I think it is an easier, easier. I mean, I I know plenty of Christians that are queer, but uh, (laughs) my synagogue, I don't remember how old I was, but she bought mitzvah with me. So young enough for that, had a lesbian rabbi and she got married at our synagogue and we were just a regular reform synagogue. We weren't like a, we're the the most (laughs) social justice progressive synagogue. We were just a reform synagogue. And we did lose some of the older parishioners, and I imagine some other aged ones too, when she joined as the rabbi. But for the most part, everyone was like, love who you love, right? Like, that's not an issue. And she was a woman rabbi, and my next rabbi was also a woman, right? So like, that's super common. It's even starting very slowly in the Orthodox community, which is one of the more uh, observant sects of Judaism, to have women rabbis. And so overall, I think that shift is is more common in our space. The idea of there being Jewish people of color is interesting to me because it seems like in the States, people are under the impression that that's not a thing. I know. Yeah, and what work are, can you talk to us about the work that you're doing for representation and as far as intersectionality goes, as a very fair-skinned person of color? Sure, so I think like the most thing that, the thing that directly relates is that I'm part of the Diverse Bodies Project. The idea is a nude photo interview series intended to increase representation of who gets seen and photographed naked and how you want to be represented, right? So it's not that you had to do a sexy shot or you had to do a serious shot, that people get to bring their personalities in through the photographs and show who they are. 
And that was really important to us. And something that we did, because it's been taking us forever, but the mini book that we've already released is the Jews Flying the Rainbow Flag mini book. And so it's got five different Jews, and we had plenty of Jews participate with it, five different Jews, ranging from like early 20s to I think 60s. And out of the five of them, two of them are Black. One of the Black Jews is also Latin, so she's Afro-Dominican. And the point of that was to be like, <laughs> folks exist, you know? And it's so common for you to be like, this is what a Jew looks like, when, yeah, sure, a lot of us do look like me. There are Black Jews, there are Latin Jews, there are Asian Jews, there are all the types. And so that was really important to us, that we highlight that these are two queer Black Jewish women, and that they get as much space in this little book as anyone else. I will say part of my work, and that's what we got into the white, the white passing fragility talk, is that I don't identify as a person of color. And who knows, maybe I'll change that at some point, but I choose not to identify that way because it feels appropriative. And to be like, just because I have another language or just because my family may have a bunch of people of color in it doesn't mean that I'm existing as a person of color. And so when I walk through the street, people see me as white and that's just true. But I do enter, and I was asked this question recently, so why do I enter people of color spaces? And it's because I'm, I feel safer there. I feel more connected there. I don't feel blech there. And so <laughs> if people are willing to have me, which they generally are, most people of color spaces are open to white presenting Latin folk, then I just ask permission and I join. That's interesting. And I, I knew that and I forgot that when I said that, because I know I'm very used to anybody who says they're a person of color, I'm just like, okay, like at least in response, because especially, you know, Black American, no, actually Latin people, even more than Black Americans, come in all kinds of shades and colors. Oh, yeah. And you can't look at somebody and have any clue what even their parents look like. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of times really informs their experience as far as how they were treated growing up. Because it is funny to me how, depending on who you're sitting beside, people may perceive your color differently, which just goes to show how arbitrary our understanding of race is. Like, number one, we know it's not a real biological thing, but like you said, it's the experience that yes. creates the cultural differences. It's the lived experience that matters. So if when you are out in the world, people treat you as though you're white, well, then you are having the white experience. Mm -hmm. And that is really the key difference. But I have biracial friends who, if they were with their brown parent, they get treated differently and are even perceived differently versus with the other parent, which I just think is fascinating. Well, my parents are both white. My dad is white, Ashkenazi, and my mother is a white presenting. Like my uncle, my uh, way, they would have been identified as POC, but not my mother. And so when I'm with my mother, it's the same thing. People don't realize she speaks Spanish. She's been spoken about by people who are like checking her out. Well, it's just interesting to me. And I don't know if this happens everywhere or if it's some of our American brainwashing, but like all the time people act as though Spanish is some kind of secret language. I'm like, what is wrong with you? It is so, so common. And the people who speak it look so many different ways. And you don't have to only speak your heart language or your first language like that's another thing I'm like you do realize so that much, yeah. maybe she could speak Spanish as a second language or not all 
Latin people look the same. I, I really don't understand the disconnect with that because I've been spoken about in Spanish to my friggin' face so many times and I do speak Spanish. And usually, I mean, unless they're saying something really rude, usually people are trying to guess whether or not the person I'm with is my husband or my, what's the male form of mistress? I bet there isn't one, right? Lover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it just goes to show like if there isn't a word that connotes not a legitimate partner because you're not married to them, that's some more sexist shenanigans. But yeah, it's just interesting to me that people make that assumption so often. So what has your experience been like trying to stay connected to your Latin roots when so often people are very narrow about what they consider to be Latin. So it's funny because all of our countries have folks, all the Latin uh, countries have folks that look like me and like most of the countries have folks that look like you, right? It's not, we're not anomalies <laughs> in these spaces. And so I actually, I was convinced I needed to prove myself. Like the, my mother, I felt counted as real Latina because she was raised in Puerto Rico. Her first language is Spanish. Like that seemed to me like, check, it counts, right? But me, I'm half Ashkenazi. I look the way that I do. My Spanish for a while was pretty crappy. And so I, I felt the need to prove myself. All my friends were Latina and I was like, I must be more Latina. I must speak this fluently and I must eat the food. And I am an incredible salsa dancer at this point. <laughs> so, but that was all me, right? And perhaps white people and perhaps black people who weren't Latin, right? And that if I said I was, the response was always like, oh, really? Unless I turned around mm. and then they're like, I see it, your butt, right? <laughs> now I know that you're Latin because of your butt. Like literally the number of times people have been like, I believe you because of your shape. Otherwise I wouldn't have counted you. Whereas on the flip side with Latin folks, there's really much surprise. Like they don't assume I'm Latina, but if I start speaking Spanish or they see me dancing or whatever, like they ask me, where are you from? They don't ask me, are you Latina? They ask me, where are you from? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? Because they assume that I am and they're right because for them, it's not so surprising to see someone who looks like me. But I think, and it's, when you think of immigration, you're going to assume that more white Latins are going to migrate because of mean, mm -hmm. whereas you have browner and blacker people migrating because of need. And so if you're hanging out with folks from your same social class, which will end up being also your same racial uh, categorization, because those are very linked whether or not we all want to admit it in the Americas as well, in all the Americas. So like, I think that that's part of it, right? You're, just, you're used to hanging out with other brown people. And so even though your country has plenty of people who look like me, you never associated with, associated with them anyway. Either they were from a different region or they were from a different social class. And so they went to different schools and they had different access. And so I think that's more it. But like Latin people never not include me. Oh, that's interesting. So it was really more just internal. Yeah, I was like in TV, none of the Latinas looked like me. All of my friends were darker than me. And so I was like, ah, I need to be darker. And my abuela, when I went to go visit her, she was like, no sunscreen. We need to get you dark. That is so interesting to me because that I've seen more often the opposite experience. So yeah. first, I think when I turn on Univision, everybody's white. And yeah. the housekeeper looks like she has some indigenous ancestry. She doesn't get to say anything except like, let me get that for you. They're white. Almost. They're like what I call exotic white. Okay. Yeah. So still not as... They have what's cons what I consider the stereotypical Latin of means look, which is like they have very heavily European race roots. 
but they were at some point mixed with other races. And so they have like olive tone skin, dark hair, like certain whatever. And I don't have that. So like, I'm actually just white passing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, that makes sense. Italy. That distinction. Yeah. I can see that for sure. Like a Sofia Vergara type of. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm sure when she is home, she would be called white. Yes. But it's just when you leave and you come here, then you, you've turned into some exotic white. Yes. And that like, that to me is like an interesting thing too. Like if in your own country, you are white. <clears throat> and then you come here and you're like, I'm a person of color. What changed? And it's true. Mm. Our racial dynamics are very different in each country. But it's interesting to me that like, I mean, you don't necessarily, people don't identify necessarily as white or black or what have you. That's not part of most of the country's ways of self. They just don't do that. And in some countries it like became illegal. Like you don't put that stuff on the birth, birth certificates. Like you just don't name race. But in my head, I'm like, you can recognize hopefully that people look different in your country and that you're having different experiences based on that. So when you come to this country, why do you claim this identity? Or if your family yeah. came to this country, why do you claim this identity when you were still white passing? Well, yeah, that is really interesting. And what is funny to me, especially for Dominicans, just because I hear this from them more than anybody else, that your race, it feels like it did change during the flight because your treatment was completely different. And maybe back home, you were part of the dominant group, culturally and power structure wise. And this is the first time people are treating you as though you're an other. Mm -hmm. And so maybe your identity will shift them because race really is a social construct. So yes. you can make a flight and your race changes, which yes. is- Totally agree. But also those are Afro-Dominicans, right? Who yeah, are then true. being- put into a category that is on the lower end of, or possibly the lowest end of our racial categories in the U.S. And so they're yeah. going from being the norm to going to being the most marginalized population in the country. Whereas if you are a light-skinned or white-passing Latina, you are going from being the highest, probably, social class in your country to being not too far down. <laughs> yeah, still like white adjacent, right? But you might feel like you're all of a sudden like, super oppressed because you're not used to any form of oppression that see that really says a lot and it is the the author speaking of white passing fragility the writer of white fragility says you know like 97 percent feels like a horrible loss or injustice when you're used to a hundred percent oh wow nice quote <laughs> and, then, and then i say that and i'm like it's she probably said some other numbers but don't look it up trust me <laughs> i love the idea of that perspective of asking for permission to go into these other spaces because you feel comfortable but then also not internalizing the rejection if somebody says i really i don't think it's a fit how did you get to that point and how do you suggest other people who are white presenting but feel more comfortable in browner spaces how should they reconcile that so i think this like ends tying back with like that white savior thing that like i need to be here don't get me wrong communities are important and again like a lot of my community is poc and that is important to me and also i recognize that not every space is for me if you were going to have a men's group i don't belong in it when I was helping facilitate a um, peer sex education group, I was like, we need a leader for the abstinence and virginity group because I am neither abstinent nor, nor identify as a virgin, right? I'm a super sexual human being. And so I don't belong in this space. It does not make the space safe. This is a group 
led by and for folks with a certain experience. And so when you recognize that that's the point, right? Like women's groups, you don't want men. And normally we don't question that. We're not like, oh, how exclusionary. What's exclusionary is if you don't allow all women, right? All women right. belong in women's groups, whether they're cis or trans, but you don't allow men because it's a woman's space. And the point is to create a space that feels safe for that population so they can be heard, feel seen, and not have to explain things that they would have to explain to someone who doesn't understand. And so to me, that is what often POC spaces are. And there's so much I can understand because I'm surrounded by POC and because my family has POC. And there's so much I can't understand because I will never live it. And so if the space would be safer without my presence, then why would I want to put myself in a spot that will cause others harm when the intention is for them to have a good space? Not every space is like that, right? Like if you go to school, if you go somewhere, most spaces, unless you're like a historically um, black university, right? Like you're gonna be surrounded by white folks and like no one's questioning that. And so why shouldn't you get to be surrounded by the people you want to be surrounded with for this time period that is yours? It's your time, it's your space. And so I think for me, it's just like thinking about what is your intentions about entering a space? Are you trying to contribute in a way that is helpful and wholesome and caring and supportive? Great, is it wanted? Yes, enter. Is it not? Go somewhere else. <laughs> you can still hang out with those same people, just not in that particular space that was designated at this time for this purpose. Right, and when you say it that way, not at this time and not this space, because I feel like a lot of people who seek out those spaces, that isn't how most of their day is. Mm -mm. You know, it's just a little refuge. And it certainly isn't that they don't want to have a fully integrated intersectional life. Like you said, it's a break from having to explain certain things. And what's interesting is when sometimes you try and make things more and more broad, there's just more potential for issues because mm -hmm. I have seen more on reality TV than in real life, <laughs> just white presenting Latin people using certain racial slurs, saying it's like okay for them because they're down or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not of the group that gets to use that word. And they just kept on defending it. I'm just like, okay, we're just, you're canceled. We're moving on. So there are, there can be issues where people who you would expect to not be problematic come in and are. And so maybe some people have been burned a few times and now they're just they're exhausted and they don't want to put the energy into fielding out who is safe and who is not safe and there's nothing wrong with that like it's not necessarily personal it could be personal if you're one of those people <laughs> but even the question right like i wanted to advertise a, a job position and so i i seek to advertise them first in places of color and queer spaces and so i contacted several different groups oh and then sorry i remember there was a posting for a DEI position at a Jewish organization. And so I started to contact the admin of different POC Jewish groups, like a black Jewish group or what have you. And I said, listen, I, I filled out their form to enter, but I was like, I don't actually want to enter. I'm wondering if you can share this link so folks can see the job. I am a white presenting uh, Latina Jew. I ended up getting messaged even by the black group and they're like, oh, you can join. <laughs> I was like, black is not part of my identity. <laughs> like we, 
it, because of the Caribbean, we have those roots as well, but like, I don't claim that. Well, it is funny. I do feel like black people in my experience, that's why I was so, I've been surprised when people have told me they were bullied by black kids in school who are other POCs. It's always surprising to me because the town that I was raised in and the part of the South that I'm from, people still were in that space of, if you were different enough to maybe not be able to get into a whites only area, or if the Klan would have targeted you too, because Klan is not down, they're very anti-Semitic, they're anti-everything, but (laughs) then you were welcome. Like, if you wanted to sit at that table, you were always welcome. Just anybody who was being othered, the policy was, come on in. If you have nowhere else to go, we'll take you. That's lovely. <laughs> I definitely know that that's not always true. And again, it's okay. I mean, the bullying's not okay. <laughs> Being who's in your spaces. But but yeah, exactly. So, like, I was, I was <laughs> welcomed. And obviously, everyone's Jewish because it's a Jewish group. And so it's, it was specifically a space built for Jews, Black Jews, and some Jews of color to have a reprieve from the white Jews. And white Jews often mean well, right? Like we fill up social justice spaces like hardcore. I've spoken to people about this, that like insofar as percentage of folks who are involved in social justice by group, I imagine that our group is one of the most heavily social justice oriented because we're so small and people are like, you're everywhere. But it doesn't mean that we're doing it well or that we're doing it right. And so, it can be exhausting to have white Jews around because we are those white savory types. Uh, and yeah, so I was, I was surprised and I was like, well, okay, like if I will post it myself and afterwards, and she had, she had posted already and she had written my name and given me credit and like said, this person wanted to let us all know about this job. That's very cool. It's nice to find community, but it's also very nice to know that when you're trying to create a safe space around certain parts of our identity, that there are people who understand and support. Because I'm sure it's hard for some people to hold that space and to not feel guilty about saying no sometimes. So it's nice to know that even if not everybody understands, some people totally understand and they're not going to lose any sleep over it. They're just going to move on to the next Facebook group and they'll be fine. And maybe you'll run into each other in another space that's centered around an yes. identity that you have in common. Yeah, so exactly. And so I think that's, it's like, it's kind of like building resilience and you might actually be in another POC group together, but not necessarily that one. <laughs> and make everybody safe because I would hate to go into a space where I was told, Hey, women are welcome. Like this happens a lot. Well, not now that everybody's at home. Groups are really growing and there's like a group for everything. But previously, it just felt like, like in the 90s, everything that was gay or LGBTQ was cis male dominated. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your company and what made you want to form a publishing company and what your vision is for that company. Sure. So my company's name is Kaleidoscope Vibrations, LLC. And for anyone who doesn't know what a kaleidoscope is, it's like, this toy that had all these like gems on the bottom and you'd move your hands in opposite directions around this tubey thing and you'd look inside and it would be, create new pretty color combinations. And so the idea is that every vibration or event in your life creates a new beautiful you and that our identities are always forming and they're always developing. And the reason I created this company was because I was this like Jew that wasn't Jewish enough. I was this Latina that uh, I didn't think that I looked enough or accounted enough. I was queer, but not queer enough. You know, like there are all these ways in this. I I didn't feel like I should count 
And that's, that's different, right? Like that's different than choosing whether or not you belong in a space as to whether or not you feel like you matter enough to be in a space or if you, you belong. And so I created this company to help people find confidence in their identities and find their communities. So maybe you don't belong to blank community, but you do belong to another one and then you can find the people that you need so you have a supportive, loving environment that understands you. And so I do workshops, I do identity coaching, curriculum development, like inclusivity in the workspace across different identities and what have you. But we also have a publishing sect and that's the purpose is to uplift different narratives that aren't necessarily heard. And so the first book was mine, which is an intro guide to a sex positive view. Sex is not necessarily something you think of when you're like, oh, this is not inclusive, but it really is. And so my book, I know I had someone read it who was like, I've been looking for a book that validated my experience as a queer person while reading it that wasn't heteronormative, right? That wasn't geared towards straight people. And it's not that my book is hetero exclusive. You can be whatever match you are. I just don't assume what you're gonna match. And so I don't add genders into my conversations in the book. And that like, that in and of itself, apparently at the time was somewhat revolutionary for some folks. And the next book was Luna C, Luna Yes. Maybe it's that, Luna Yes, Luna C. <laughs> And it is a book about two little sisters who are Latina. It's in English and in Spanish. And the younger sister has autism and she is 40% verbal. And so we often see representations of savants, right? So, and they tend to be white males. And so you have these kids who have really incredible abilities to count numbers or to memorize things or what have you. And they often do have very good verbal capacities. They have awkward social cues because they have trouble reading it, but that's like the extent to how they represent autism. Whereas in this case, like you see how she, how she is able to communicate the form that her language takes. And you do learn about like the kinds of things that she can do. You learn about stims. So like the ticks that people do to keep themselves calm and well. And that was the intention, right? Like that autism comes in all colors <laughs> and in all ethnicities, that there are varying levels of how much people can communicate and what, you know, how much need or help they might require. And yeah, and it just, that's it. It's a story about sisters and how they love each other and how they communicate. And also one of them has autism. And so that intention of bringing those to the surface. And yeah, we're working on a bunch of other different possibilities as well. Another one's about anxiety. So another bilingual book about a little girl with anxiety and what that's looked like for her. Oh, that's really helpful. I think that more and more children are experiencing anxiety earlier. So that's definitely needed. And it is interesting how ableism, racism, xenophobia, how it all plays together and how you really don't see representations of people living with a diagnosis that aren't white. It's, I mean, it's almost mm -hmm. always going to be white to the extent that when you meet someone with something as common as Down syndrome who's Asian, you're like, wow, like, oh, I didn't know... <laughs> Obviously, we can all get it, whatever. We can be born any kind of way, human diversity. It's just what we choose to feature that makes it yeah. seem like we aren't as diverse as we are. But then it's also the like racism that exists within the publishing space. And so even when you do have some books that are more representative and that like the pictures have kids of all different colors, it doesn't necessarily mean that the author is a person of color. And so with my company, you have to have either the identities that you are discussing or someone in your like close family, someone in your close life 
and you have lived this with them, right? That you are experiencing this with them. So like the author of the book with autism, the person with autism didn't write this. She doesn't write, but her sister wrote it. Right? And so she has lived with her sister, her the younger one's entire life, the woman who has autism's entire life. And so that was the perspective that we were able to take. And so it's very important to me that the people who are writing the stories also have lived experience. And it's not just about like, oh yeah, we need to mix A and B and with number three so that we can you know, count in this diversity world where like, you're supposed to do this. No, it's about like, this is my story and I want you to hear it. And the way that people tell their own story is so different from how it's told by an observer. Mm-hmm. And people can feel that difference. Sometimes it's so subtle, but you definitely, some things just, they're very difficult to fake. And so right now, a lot of companies in all sectors, not just you know publishing, people are faking the funk right now and it's not pretty. So <laughs> it falls flat. It's all kind of, oh, this just came to me. Did you see that woman who has been saying yes. that she's a woman who said that she was black from the Bronx. Yes. Latina from the Bronx and is a white Jew from Kansas. Yes. She got the hoop earrings. She got the tan. And she was like, I'm ready to rock. I do not understand how this has happened more than once in such a widely publicized way in my lifetime. So I actually, let's, let's break that down a bit. So first off, she's a she is a white Jew, right? My friend is also a white Jew. Neither of them actually present white, right? Like if you look at them, that's not the identity you're going to give them because they were darker skin tones, right? <laughs> like, and so it's also interesting how whiteness works that like, because they are Jewish, they are given, right? It just, that is also so interesting. But I remember someone commented like, how did no one realize like Afro-Latinas don't come that light? And I was like, hold up a second, okay. way lighter than that woman, right? There are People who identify as black, that is their identity, who are way lighter than this faker. And so my thing was, you should not fake who you are, but the fact that people believed her makes total sense to me. But it seemed like to me, what was the most damning is how some of her clothing choices and accessory choices, maybe they speak to her. Right. It just seemed a little performative. But it, at the same time, different identities. Oh, I didn't see Did that part. Afro-Latina was her latest identity. The one before that was Black American. The one before that was North African. Okay. She it's... moved across the, the globe. Like, no one tracked this? Like, at one point she was North African, and now she's Black, and now she's Afro-Latina from the Bronx specifically. Yeah, that's interesting too, that extra, that that was so important for her to feature. That, what trips me out about it, and I think what really troubles a lot of people about it is to know that race is not real to the extent that whatever you say could literally change your experience. You just have to keep saying it and buy some hoops and you could be another person. Like it, it just, she went overboard with the, just so stereotypical, but yeah. <laughs> You're right. It easily could have been true going mm-hmm. off of skin color alone. And some people do still dress that way, even though it's not the 90s anymore. But yeah, I did love my hoops in the 90s. I, saw, I, I did too. But, <laughs> you know, but they're like more modern with the embellishment. It has that like handcrafted feel. I don't know what happened with the hoops. It went out for me with letting my eyebrows finally try and grow back in. 
but I did used to be so, so into that. But at one point I also had a jerry curl, so I really shouldn't talk about anybody else's sense of style. <laughs> I've made many mistakes over the years. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and coming on. Where can people find you? Sure. So my main thing is that I'm Yael the Sex Geek. I'm a sexologist, sex coach, a sex educator. And so Yael the Sex Geek on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My website is sexpositiveu.com. So pretty easy. And then my company is kvibrations.com. And so you can find most of my things through there. Awesome. You're doing so many different things. We didn't even touch on the sex positivity. Maybe that's for another day. Are you thinking of revisiting that book now that you know we're kind of all in a different place as a country and as queer people are, are there things you'd like to add or are you going to revise that edition or write something new yeah so the book is only two years old but like oh, as you know oh. things change and shift so much right like now there is so much more language outside of queer spaces around pronouns but i think even in 2018 like the idea of talking about pronouns outside of queer spaces was still foreign for most so yes, there are definitely, I've looked back and I'm like, oh, overall, I'm like, this is a good book. Just, you know, like people love my book <laughs> like, and I'm, I go back and I'm like, oh, this was, this is better than you thought it was. <laughs> yes. There are of course things I want to change, but I, I'm looking into doing a teen workbook version of it because I wrote it for my 14 year old self, but I don't think parents of 14 year olds would be thrilled to have their kids read this book. And I think it's more of like a 16 and up kind of book. And I, I want to be able to reach people when they're younger because sexual trauma and boundary making and self-pleasure and all of that is important before you are 18 um, or 16. And I also started, but I'm not going to have time right now, the nerds guide. So this is the intro guide and the nerds guide goes into the socio-historical and psychological backgrounds. And so when you talk about things like gender, I want to be able to talk about that there are six sexes and genders represented in the Talmud, an ancient Jewish text written, written 1500 years ago. Mm. I want to talk about the Hijra in India and that they have, like, that is a third gender that's established that how different Native American communities have two-spirit or don't have two-spirit identities and, like, what does that mean and how do they conceptualize it? And just, like, recognizing that there's so much more beyond what we talk about. Yeah. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. But yeah. that's going to take a while. It's going to take research. And I'm doing a PhD right now. And so <laughs> the list just keeps going. <laughs> so that's on the back burner. That's like, a, maybe if someone gives me a book deal, I'll work on that. I love it. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I always, I really enjoy talking with you, Dahlia. Same here, same here. You'll have to come back when you finish your uh, nerd book. Or I'm sure <laughs> actually you're doing so many things. I'm sure it'll be before then. Sounds good. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.